We're winding down in the Gospel of Matthew. We won't finish it tonight because in addition to the fact that Matthew chapter 26 is the longest chapter in Matthew, one of the longest chapters in the New Testament, um, we're also going to be celebrating communion and I don't want to take away from that. We'll see if we even get through chapter 26. But we're winding it down. We're moving toward the death of Jesus and Lord willing, next week we'll be finishing up the book of Matthew. But here in chapter 26, it begins with a Jesus again for, he's now told them six or seven times that he's going to be dying. Came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that is the Olivet Discourse, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, at the same time Jesus is saying that, the Passover is coming and I'm going to be crucified on the Passover. At the same time, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Jesus himself is saying, I'm going to be killed. I'm the Passover lamb. It's going to happen on the Passover. The people who were plotting against him were saying, we need to kill this guy, but we can't do it on the Passover. And it's kind of funny. There's always this big controversy as to whose fault was it that Jesus died. And in the upcoming Mel Gibson movie, The Passion, a lot of people are complaining in advance, saying it makes it look like the Jews were killers of Jesus. Now, let's face it, they were involved. But this shows very clearly their plan specifically was not to kill him on the Passover. And in fact, when did he get killed? He was killed on the Passover. This just shows who was in charge. It shows the fact that Jesus, well, what he said was true. Nobody takes my life, he says. I give it up myself. And so Jesus was in control. He knew what he had to do. He predicted it ahead of time. Their prediction was just the opposite, and his came true. Jesus would now go and face death. And so here in this last week, we see that Jesus was preparing the disciples, but he knew what was going to happen, and he was willingly offering himself for it. And then we have this story of his being anointed there at Bethany. And it says, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. An interesting story. A woman comes to Jesus and she anoints him with this expensive ointment. The disciples, they think it's a waste. They still haven't comprehended. Now, a few days later, after Jesus has died and he's been buried, there are other women who come to the grave and they, at that point, want to anoint his body with oil. That was something that they would typically do for someone who had died. 
But he said, this woman, she was able to anoint me and it's about my death. The fact is in a few days, it'll be too late. The women who came to the tomb to anoint him with oil, they missed out. They didn't have the opportunity to do this because he was already risen and it was too late. Oh, I think sometimes when it's too bad when someone dies and then everyone has all those wonderful things to say about them and then everyone, the eulogies flow and we have all of those warm feelings and people that we didn't even like once they die, we kind of warm up to them and, and yet really, uh, among other things we see here, that the time to minister to someone, the time to anoint them, to bless them is while they're still here. They're going to die someday. Jesus' death took on a special significance, of course, because he was dying for us. But this one woman, who we, we know is Mary, the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, as we read the other Gospels, in the Gospel of John it tells us that. But she was comprehending what no one else was. And as a result, coming to Jesus and anointing him and really the value of the ointment, which was expensive. It, would, it, it was, a, the other gospels tell us about what it would sell for and it was a lot of money. And their concern, the disciples' concern, and we find out from the Gospel of John that Judas in particular was the leader of this complaint, going, wait a minute, that's such a waste. You know, it's funny. Because money is the most important thing to us sometimes, we think that to God it must be equally important, that it must be a really big deal to God. And we hear of someone who steals money from a church or something, and we, and we think, oh, how could he do, how can you do such a thing to steal the Lord's money, to rob God in that way? And I agree, it's a bad thing to steal from God. And the Lord talks about that in Malachi, among other places, about a man robbing God. But the truth is he has his much more severe warnings against people who hurt other people. Now, people are way more valuable to him than money. And we need to make sure that we don't start thinking that, oh, money, money. Sometimes money is there and it's just going to come and go. We burn it. We lose it. We waste it. And really, that's not the Lord's primary concern. Oh, he wants us to be good stewards. I don't want to belittle that. Only to belittle it in light of the truth that what's important is glorifying Jesus Christ, is glorifying God, and having that relationship with him where we worship him. Sometimes I think it's kind of funny. It's very popular among churches like ours where we're in kind of a nondescript sort of building that you can't tell it's even a church. And, And we look down our noses at churches that build these gorgeous cathedrals and have these really spectacular looking structures. And it's easy for us to go, yeah, what a waste. Do you know how many hungry people could have been fed if they hadn't wasted all that money on that cathedral, if they hadn't spent all that money on all those windows? And and we look at it and kind of self-righteously, we look down our noses, but interesting. Jesus here, when they were coming up with a similar kind of argument, he said, it's, it's to glorify me. The poor you have with you always. Don't, yeah, there are always going to be people who are hungry. But money that is spent bringing glory to me is money well spent. 
even if it seems like it's a waste, if it's to show, Jesus, you're so valuable that I will give this up for you. Like the rich young ruler that we read about a few weeks ago, Jesus told him, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. In that case, letting him see that if he didn't, wasn't willing to give up everything, that he couldn't follow Jesus. In that case, the poor would have been taken care of very well. In this case, Jesus has almost flippant attitude concerning the waste of resources because he wanted them to understand, I'm dying, I'm God. She gets it, she's worshiping me, even though it may not look like a good deal to you, this story will be told for years and years about her. And, and when it is, you know, he says, he says, uh, assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So if she's worshiping me from the heart, he's saying, I don't really care what it costs. Now, are there other ways she could have done it? Maybe, but I would suggest to you that by just pouring out this expensive ointment, and placing herself in the, in the gospel like this, having her name in heaven, we're going to come up to her and, and we know her, Mary, as the one who sat at Jesus' feet. We know her as the one who worshipped him by pouring this precious ointment on him. And, and that's to be commended. Jesus did. He looked well on it. Um, there's not an easy, clear-cut sort of lesson to derive from it whereby we can figure out exactly how much money should we spend on the poor, how much money should we spend on luxuriating things at the feet of Jesus, how, how much is ministry actually worth. We're kind of left to listen to the Holy Spirit about how we are to do that. But what this story tells us is that you can't figure out what you ought to be doing for the Lord. You can't figure out what things are worth in the spiritual economy by judging it based on a material economy. Because Jesus came to turn things upside down. And so it's obvious, whatever you take away from this passage, recognize that what he was saying was, you can't put a price tag on worshiping me. You can't put a physical value, a compensatory value even of what else that money could be done to feed the poor. We find out in the Gospel of John that really Judas wasn't interested in feeding the poor. He was bummed to see the offering go because he was ripping the offering off. He wasn't really thinking about what could the poor do with the money. He was thinking about what he could do with the money. Now, this story, this passage, it's one that's brought up often by people who want to criticize the Bible and say that it's contradictory. And so they often say they take four accounts in the Gospels and say, here's a story that's contradicted all over the place. Well, that's just not true. If you look at it carefully, you can see what, what's happening. We have the story here in Matthew. Now, if you go over to um, Mark chapter 14... We see another account of this same story happening. And here, as uh, beginning in verse 3, he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. As he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. 
There were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Jesus went ahead and said basically the same thing that he had said back in Matthew chapter 26. The only difference really, the only change, it's still he's in Bethany, he's at the house of Simon the leper, the woman pours the flask. In verse 7 of chapter 26, she poured it on his head, and here he poured it on his head. Now, other than that, oh, and the other thing we find out is that, is that you know, they mentioned that it cost 300 denarii, and so a little more details there. Now, turn over to John chapter 12, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to point out to you, because people may point at some of these passages and say, oh, they contradict. So in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now, this doesn't say that, that uh, it was at the house of Simon the leper. But it doesn't say that it was at Mary and Martha's house. It just says it was in Bethany. So there's no contradiction there. Sometimes they'll say, oh, this one, they were at the house of Mary and Martha. The other one, they were at the house of Simon the leper. Um, no contradiction at all. They were in Bethany. Mary and Martha, Lazarus were all there at the house of Simon the leper, who, by the way, was probably, he didn't have leprosy now. He couldn't have a party. He was probably one who had been healed of leprosy by Jesus. So they made him a supper, and Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance, and Judas, one of the disciples who would betray Jesus, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The amount agreeing with Mark. The difference here, and then it says, He didn't care about the poor, but he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So what he says there is consistent with what he said in Matthew and Mark. The only difference is now we know it's Judas specifically speaking. That's not a contradiction because he's one of the disciples. So we find out Judas is the one who initially brought up this thing. In Mark, it says they were thinking in their hearts. Well, when Judas said it, apparently a lot of the disciples thought, yeah, he's right. Boy, we could. That is a waste. That is kind of crazy. The only contradiction that you can see here at all is in Matthew and Mark, it says that his head, his head was anointed. Here, his feet was anointed. Now, anointing a special guest in a house, and even for a servant girl, to wipe his feet with her hair was not that unusual. It was a custom of the day. And certainly, as you would anoint someone's head, the oil would run down on the body. And as she's finishing up, it would be natural to clean the feet, to wash the feet of Jesus, and to anoint his feet further. So all we find out is that, you know, we find out whose house it was in, but there's still no contradiction. We find out that in addition to anointing his head, that she also anointed his feet, and we find out it was Mary who did this. Now, really no major problem, no major contradiction. Now, in the passage in Luke chapter 7, it's a different story. It's something that's completely, uh, the whole thing happens differently. In this case, in Luke chapter 7, we see that it was a sinful woman in verse 36 of chapter 7. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So now he's at a Pharisee's house. It's not Simon the leper's house. 
It's also, it doesn't say it's in Bethany, it says it's in the city, so probably near Jerusalem. He went to the Pharisee's house, sat down to eat, and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Certainly nobody's ever described Mary, uh, the sister of Martha, that way, so you know it's a different person. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now again, not an unusual custom in those days. When the Pharisee who had invited him, who turns out his name is Simon, saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know um, who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, go ahead. And he said, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And he said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you've rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said how she took care of him when no one else did. She anointed his head, washed his feet, and he then told her, your sins are forgiven. A completely, and then told her that her faith had saved her. So this one in Luke, you can take out of the problem because this is obviously a completely different story. Now, those people who like to try to find Bible contradictions say, look, it says that it was Simon the Pharisee's house. The other one says it was, it was um, Simon the leper. So was there a leprous Pharisee? No, no one could have been a Pharisee while they were a leper, had they been a leper. But not only that, the name Simon was so common. We just saw in John that Judas's dad's name was Simon. There's also, out of 12 disciples, two of them were named Simon. Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. Simon the Cyrene carried the cross. There was Simon who was the brother of Jesus as well. There, there are like eight or nine Simons in the New Testament. It's a very common name. So Luke doesn't have anything to do with the other three stories. When you look at the other ones, the only real difference is one in one case it mentions that he anointed his head was anointed, the other two that or the other one two said his head was anointed, one said his feet was anointed. Other than that, there are no real contradictions in the story that can't be explained by realizing that different people just told different aspects or different part of the story. I hope that doesn't bore you to death, but okay, I guess it does. But um, <laughs> it's one of those things that people bring up constantly to try to trip you up. College professors love to bring this stuff up because they think it'll trip people up. And, and you know, I, I, when I talk to people about these things and they're arguing with me, often what I will do with some of these silly little nitpicky things, after listening for a while, I'll say, that's amazing. And they get all excited and they say, oh, so you see it. There are a lot more of these contradictions. I say, no, I don't have a problem with the contradictions that seem to be there. What I have a problem with is because you don't know whether his feet or his head were anointed, you're willing to go to hell for it. You're willing to reject Jesus. That just amazes me that you care that much about how to explain these stories, that you're going to bank your eternity on the fact that, oh, there must be nothing to the gospel as a result of whether or not you can put these passages together in a way that fit. So I don't have a problem with them. There are ways to easily bring them together. But again, by throwing the Luke story in, people can really tip it upside down because it varies in so many ways. The truth is the other three stories um, vary slightly and can easily be explained. 
Verse 14, one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Judas, for some reason, was fed up with Jesus. Now, we don't know if it had something to do with the way that he was allowing this waste to happen. Maybe Judas was feeling like the jig is about up and, and I'm not going to be able to skim the money off the top as I've been doing. For one reason or another, he became disillusioned and, and decided to turn on Jesus. And so he went in and, and uh, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to pay me if I bring him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Of course, this had been, Matthew shows so many fulfillments of prophecy, but this had been prophesied in the Old Testament. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So Judas was looking for an opportunity to turn Jesus over, to find him in a spot at a time when there weren't a ton of people around so they could come and, and capture him and kill him. Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Passover was now coming. Now it says here in verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now that becomes kind of confusing because if Jesus was killed on the Passover, you remember from Exodus and Leviticus that you had the Passover and then the next seven days were the Feasts of Unleavened Bread. And so this becomes kind of confusing, but if you look in your Bibles, the, um, it, on the day is in italics and feast of is in italics. And so literally it's now on the first of the unleavened bread. The day before Passover, they, kinda, they called it the first of unleavened because that was the day when they would get all the unleavened bread out of their house. It would take a while, get all those products, the yeast and everything, and remove it from their house. So really this day wasn't the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's not a good translation. It was the day before the Passover, two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the disciples said, well, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man. You're going to find this particular guy, you'll know when you see him, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So God had prepared this guy, and he had a room already ready. And from what we know from here, we don't uh, we don't know if Jesus knew the guy and he knew what he was talking about or not, but at any rate, the Lord had it prepared and they began to get the Passover ready. And so uh, as they were eating, they were having dinner before the Passover dinner. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, he had been saying that he was going to die and they were tired of hearing that. But now it gets really personal. He says, one of you is going to betray me to the twelve. And, and so they were exceedingly sorrowful. They were all bummed, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? It's kind of interesting. Judas wasn't an obvious fall guy. He wasn't the guy that, it, you know, when they said, somebody, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all look at Judas. Like they were all, in fact, they were all going, is it me? Am I the one? Is it I? The idea is they all realize their weakness to a degree. We'll see Peter has a, a different sort of problem, but they're just going, wow, somebody's going to betray you. They all trusted each other. They had been together for a good period of time. And so they began to question, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The last guy that had his hand in the dish when I did, that's the guy. 
And, and he goes on to say, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe is that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now at this point, people are thinking, who was the last guy that stuck his hand in with Jesus? And Judas is going, ooh, <laughs> I think that was me. Maybe they're noticing. So he decides he better play along. He answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Interestingly, that the other disciples, as they were questioning him, said, Lord, is it I? And Judas, already not so confident in who Jesus was, now was just calling him teacher. Is it I? And Jesus said, you said it. Boy, that's not exactly the answer he wanted to hear. And, and you think, did he say it really quietly so no one else knew? Well, obviously not, because it's recorded by, in the Gospels, so someone else heard it. And, whoa, did you hear that? Wow, that's, that's insensitive. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus, serving them the Passover, then personalizing it, and doing what we will observe later on this evening, taking the bread, it's broken, and he says, this is my body, eat it. Taking the juice, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do it, and he says, there will come a day when I celebrate it with you again. It'll be in the kingdom. Now, as we celebrate the, the Lord's table as we celebrate, even as they celebrated the Passover, they were looking forward in the Passover to the sacrifice of the Messiah, to the gift of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. They were eating and partaking of the Passover by faith, knowing that that Passover lamb ultimately would come one day. So they were, they were doing it prophetically. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, the Eucharist. We celebrate it looking back at the gift that he gave for us on the cross. During the millennium, again, they will all celebrate the Passover, the full Passover feast. But it'll be different because it'll be looking back as a memorial rather than looking forward prophetically. And so Jesus here telling them, not going to do it again until... I'm, I'm here. The kingdom is happening. And so a couple other things I'd like to point out about this. I mean, we, a lot of controversy about communion, largely because historically there's always been an argument. What did Jesus mean by saying, this is my body? This is my blood. And, and there are, well, the Catholic Church has a doctrine called transubstantiation where they believe that when Jesus does that or when the priest breaks the bread or pours the wine, that it actually literally becomes body and blood of Jesus. Now, you probably have Catholic friends, and a lot of them aren't superstitious enough to really believe that, but it's the official doctrine of the church, and a whole lot of Catholics literally believe that if you took that wine after the priest blesses it, and you put it under a microscope and typed it, 
it would literally be blood. And it would literally contain the DNA of Jesus Christ himself. Now, that seems sort of strange to us. There are other churches who have come up with similar ideas, but not quite so radical. The Lutheran churches came up with a doctrine of, they wouldn't call it transubstantiation, they called it consubstantiation, but it was very, very close to that. And there are other people today, the Orthodox Church and others, who who understand this to be something very, very literal. On the other hand, there are people who just believe, ah, it's nothing, it's just crackers and juice, it's no big deal. Now, I do believe that the Bible teaches that we are to reverence the communion, that it's something that we are to take seriously, that something actually happens to us spiritually as we partake in it. And so I wouldn't want to be in the group of people who just think that, ah, it's meaningless, it's no big deal, it's, you know, we don't even need to celebrate it, that's what some people feel. On the other hand, I don't believe that it turns into literal body, flesh, and blood. And I'm pretty sure that if you went and were able to get some in the Catholic Church and take it to a laboratory, you're not going to find out that it's actual blood. However, I, I'm, I'm slow to criticize too heavily those churches that believe that way. And the reason is because Jesus did say, this is my body, this is my blood. And I don't like to pick on people too much for taking the Bible too literally. It's an honest mistake that they're making. There are a few reasons, and some of them can be seen here in this passage, why I personally don't believe in that, and I think that's a mistake. Um, for one thing, Jews would have never drank blood. It was forbidden by the law. And so if it was literal blood and Jesus himself drank it, drank his own blood, he'd be violating the law. He would not be righteous. He couldn't be able to save us because he would have just broken the law. Not a nitpicky part of, of, you know, extended law. This was central to the law, even to the point where when Gentiles were getting saved in Acts, they said, look, still do us a favor. Don't drink blood. That's just deeply offensive to us. So uh, if it was literal blood, not only would the disciples have not drank it, but Jesus couldn't have drank it and still saved us. It's as simple as that. But there are other clues. And a lot of times people today forget this. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was still in his body. No one would have heard that and thought, what did he do, pull a finger off? Did he, you know, is he, how's this happening? No, they'd, they'd figure out, of course, he's being figurative. He's still in his body. He still has his blood coursing through his veins. And then thirdly, after he blessed it and said, this is my body, this is my blood, then he says in verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. If it had turned into blood, well, then it wouldn't be accurate to call it fruit of the vine. He says he would have said, I'm not going to drink my blood with you until we do it again in the kingdom. And so, again, sincerely and honestly wrong are those people who would believe that it actually mystically turns into flesh and blood. It doesn't. It's a symbol. But it's an important symbol. It's one that we shouldn't downplay. It's one that we shouldn't scorn, certainly. Now Jesus predicted Peter's problems. Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus here is quoting a prophecy from Zechariah that, in fact, when he is taken to die, the, 
the, the disciples would run away like, you know, rats fleeing a sinking ship. And after I've been raised, though, I'll meet you in Galilee. So I'm not going to see you guys. You're going to be running away. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Not like before when the disciples are going, is it I? Is it I that's going to betray you? Peter's going, no way. It was by this time, I know I'm not the one that that is going to betray you, and I'm certainly not going to deny you, and I'm not going to run. I'm sticking with you, Jesus. You can count on me. Remember, I was the one. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you upon this rock. and all. You know, no, it's not going to happen. And, and Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the other disciples said, yeah, me too, me too. Basically, again, Peter going, Jesus, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You don't know me like you think you do. I wouldn't do it. I won't. I can't. I, I would never betray you. Well, later that night, we find out that he does. But now Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. It's a little garden on the Mount of Olives there across from the east gate of Jerusalem. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus was going through the toughest event of his life by far. And he asked the disciples to wait, but he took three of them, his inner circle, and he said, can you guys just be with me? I need somebody to pray with me. I need, and sometimes we just need that fellowship. We need that closeness and intimacy. And it, it's what Jesus wanted. And Peter, James, and John, had they understood, had they comprehended what was about to happen, they would have been so honored that Jesus wanted them to be there. But he said, he said to them, uh, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he took a few steps, and he fell down on his face, and he began praying. Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of suffering, the cup that would contain the sins of the world that was going to be poured out on him. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, submitting himself to the will of the Father, he knew this was going to have to happen. But at the same time, he was agonizing over the fact that his fellowship with the Father for the first time in all of eternity would now be broken. That he would feel for the first time the effects of sin, and not just one person's sin, the effects of the sins of everyone from Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden to what you and I are going to do tomorrow and the next day. And he felt, he knew it was all going to hit him. And it was killing him, literally. It was, he was devastated, but he was saying, God, if, if there's a way, but your will, I want to do what you want me to do. And as he prayed that, he came, turned around, and the disciples were sleeping. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is agonizing, lying there. They hadn't seen him show a sign of weakness in all the time they were with him. And now at his time of need, at his time of agony, as soon as he begins to pray, they get bored and fall asleep. And he said to Peter, because Peter was the guy that was just going, hey, I'm sticking with you no matter what. Thanks a lot. You're falling asleep trying to have a prayer meeting here. What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? It wasn't a long time. These guys dozed off as soon as he got going. 
Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. An understanding that Jesus had that I know you guys want to do what's right, but keep your eyes open. The devil is near. I'm battling with him. There are dangers that surround you, even as there are today. And the command for us today also is to watch and pray, to be on guard, to realize that the devil's wanting to rip us off any way he can and that he doesn't ever let up. He just keeps coming from different directions with different approaches, trying to destroy us. And if we don't watch and pray, we'll fail. We'll lose. And so he tells them that. And the second time he went and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They tried. This time he didn't wake them up. He just left them there and said, Well, they need a nap. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Again, an interesting passage of scripture for those people who say that it's a lack of faith to pray for something more than once. There are people among the faith movement today who say, when you give it to the Lord, you take your hands back and it's his. And if you pray more than once for something, you're showing a lack of faith. Well, then Jesus showed a lack of faith because it says he prayed the same thing three times. Paul also in 2 Corinthians with his thorn in the flesh, same thing, said he prayed three times. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you guys still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. He knew his time was now. Because here it is, it's in the evening of the Passover. The Passover lamb would be sacrificed tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock. So the timing was perfect in order to fulfill all of the prophecies that the Old Testament had talked about. While he was still speaking, here comes Judas, with a great multitude with swords and clubs. They knew that he had powers, and they were ready for him, brought all these people. And now his betrayer had given them a sign and said, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Interesting that a lot of these people who were coming to take him captive didn't even know who he was. But also, it was dark. They wouldn't have been able to recognize him. It lets you know one thing. Jesus, when he was on the earth, didn't wear that big halo thing where everyone could see him glowing all the time. Just looked like a regular guy. And so Judas came and and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Why did you come? Over in Psalm 41... And David records this, but it's prophetic. David knew about having friends betray him. But in in Psalm 41, as uh, it's prophesying concerning this very event, it's a a fulfillment of this very scripture. In verse 9, he says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Remember, it was just hours before that Jesus was offering, was serving communion to Judas, that he was allowing him to be a part of of the inner circle of the disciples, that he trusted him with handling the finances of the group. And here Judas would turn on him like this. Knowing what Jesus knew, it's amazing how he trusted him. I think sometimes we refuse to trust people who fail us. We refuse to 
to fellowship with people who have offended us in some way. Jesus, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, was going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He still gathered there around the communion table there in the upper room, allowed him to be a disciple. He blessed him. He handed him the bread that he would eat with him. He served him the cup. Where do we get off? Like there are some people that are just, we don't want to have anything to do with them. There are some people I can't fellowship with them. You know what they believe? I can't fellowship with him. You know what he does? Oh boy, secretly I've heard that he watches bad movies and uses foul language. I I just wouldn't have him in my house. I, I can't have anything to do with them. And Jesus fellowshiped and trusted Judas. Amazing. The grace of, of a Lord who could say, you know, it's not too late. And I believe Judas never really repented. He, we'll see later, he felt bad that he had done it. But he still didn't reach out to Jesus. I believe if he, at the last minute, if he had said, Jesus, I didn't know what I was doing, Jesus would have said, Father, forgive him. But instead, Judas ended up dying in his sin. Jesus, it wasn't because Jesus didn't reach out to him and try, though. He, he loved him and didn't, didn't turn away his kiss at all. He just said, called him friend. Last, time he, last thing he had to say to him. They came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And one of those who were with Jesus, we find out from John that it was Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We find out over there in John that Jesus ended up picking up the ear and putting it back on and healing it. The guy's name was Malchus, who was, a, who was a servant of the high priest. But here Jesus rebukes Peter and says, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it's going to happen like this? Jesus wasn't rebuking him for having a sword. Earlier, Jesus had told the disciples that they needed to carry swords. But what he was saying was, this isn't the time and place. This isn't the way. My hour has come. I've been telling you that. And believe me, Jesus says, I don't need you to defend me. I could defend myself just fine. Legions of angels could be here, wipe these guys out in a moment's notice. So some fisherman with the sword is going to defend me. Peter wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a guy who was an expert marksman with a sword, obviously. He was probably trying to take the guy's head off, almost missed, just took the edge of his ear off. And Jesus is going, Peter, you still think I need you to protect me? You still think I need you to defend me? I can defend myself just fine. It's what, and you've heard me quote it before, and you'll hear me quote it again. I love C.S. Lewis talking about apologetics, said, you defend God the way you defend a lion. Open the cage and get out of the way. And that is so true. God doesn't need us to scramble around. Oh, no, people don't believe in him. How are we going to convince him? How are we going to reach him? Oh, it's all on us now. It's okay. He can defend himself. Somebody's attacking him. He doesn't get upset. When he gave his life, it was because he knew that it had to be done for you and for me. And he didn't defend himself. If he needs to defend himself sometimes, he'll do that. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, the people standing there coming to capture him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple. 
And you didn't seize me then, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. He looks at the people who came to capture him and said, you guys could have taken me any time. Why now? He said, I'll tell you why now. This is the time. This is what's supposed to happen. And the disciples went, I'm out of here. And they all just split. We thought maybe something could happen, but he's turning himself in. He's showing such weakness. We don't get it. And so they left. Those who laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. And Peter followed at a distance, and he went and sat with the servants. Everyone was trying to get false testimony against Jesus. They couldn't find anybody to even say they had ever seen him do anything wrong. Finally, in verse 60, a couple of guys came forward and and said, uh, Okay, we heard this fellow say, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. They're twisting something that he had said earlier. Maybe they misheard it, misunderstood it, but they're recognized as false witnesses. He was talking about his body, and he didn't say, I can destroy this place and build it back up. But it was all they could come up with on him. And the high priest arose and said, well, this isn't going to do it. So I'm going to cross-examine him. Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? What's the deal? And Jesus didn't say anything. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Now you have to tell the truth. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Oh, that would have just made him go ballistic, and it did. The Son of Man, that was a title in Ezekiel and Daniel for the Messiah, for God himself. And the idea that he's saying, yeah, I'm the Son of God. Yes, I'm the Messiah. And you're going to see me when I'm there in the power of heaven. Someday you're going to answer to me. And the high priest ripped his clothes. He was so upset. He's spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. It's interesting that when a Jewish high priest heard this, he knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. Other people today read it and they don't think it means that. It doesn't upset them. Oh, he's just saying that he's just another person or he's just speaking figuratively. There was no mistaking what he was saying. What do you think? They answered and said, he's deserving of death. See, they had to come up with enough evidence to then take him before the Roman authorities, take him before Pilate, because they wanted the death penalty. They could have given him lesser penalties, but they were going for the death penalty. And they said, that's it. That's all. Then they began spitting in his face, probably blindfolded him, hitting him, striking him with the palms of their hands and saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Just making fun of him. He was dying for them, and it was just a big joke to them. But they wanted him dead. And then the sad story of Peter, closing the chapter. Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a little servant girl came and said, Hey, you were with Jesus of Galilee. And he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. You have a Galilean accent. You have to be with him. And then he began to curse and swear. 
And he said, I don't know the man. And then he hears the rooster crow. And he remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter repented at that point. Jesus had earlier said, I'm going to pray for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you. And though he fulfilled the prophecy and denied the Lord, yet as soon as that cock crew, as as soon as he heard the, it was like, wow, what have I done? I was just ready to defend him with a sword. I was just saying, I'll never leave him. I'll always be by his side. And look at me, I wimped out. You ever have that feeling? When you have an opportunity to really do something for the Lord, you have an opportunity to speak up, and you just don't. You just kind of chicken out. You just back off. It'd be so cool if every time we did that, we'd hear a rooster. Oh, man. And then weep bitterly, but grow and learn from it. Unfortunately, in our society here in Orange County, there aren't a lot of roosters. But there are plenty of people who deny the Lord in one way or another by doing things that he's already told us we're not to do, by denying him, by not speaking up for him when we have an opportunity. At least Peter, after he did it, he showed his heart by weeping bitterly. Now, it's one thing for in front of a bunch of people, servant girl and others, to be like, I don't want to be seen as a Galilean. But here he is yelling, cussing, denying And then still there, weeping bitterly, crying, realizing what he had done. If we don't get to the point where we understand the the full impact of our own sin, if we're more worried about what people think of us than we are really about our relationship with God, that's sad. Because not only allowing what other people think to keep us from confessing him, but then to worry so much about what they think that we don't want to show weakness, we don't want to cry, we don't want to admit failure. That's a, that's a sad state of affairs. May God help us as we reflect. It's one of the reasons why we're to take communion, because we need to think about our own failure. We need to think about how much we need him. We need to come and confess before him. He'll, he's already forgiven us. But it's us realizing what we've done that puts a power into our lives, that clears us, that cleans us, that causes us not to have to carry baggage with us anymore. It's not about, is God going to forgive you? No, he already forgave you. Your sin, every sin you'll ever commit if you're a Christian, was already judged on the cross. But it's so important that we understand the implication, the ramification of our sin, because that sin puts us in a place where we shouldn't be, out of fellowship with the Lord, following from a distance, denying him in many ways. And his desire is for us to be close to him. And so as we reflect on communion, as we consider the body and blood of the Lord that was broken, that was shed for us, it's important for us to realize, hey, We have sinned, we have failed, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But this communion table, this gift that comes from God, this gift of Jesus Christ giving his body, shedding his blood, is a gift that pays for it, that takes care of it, 
that satisfies God. He would see the travail of his soul, Isaiah 53, and be satisfied. For by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. When Peter began to weep, Jesus forgave him. And one of the first things Jesus said to somebody is, tell Peter and the disciples, I'm back. I've risen. He didn't have to come crawling to him. Jesus' prayer for Peter was answered because when he sinned, he knew it. May God help us to have the perspective that when we sin, and he says that we will, he's already told us, don't act like, no, I'm not going to sin anymore. That sin that I've done, never again, I'm never going to do it. Famous last words. Our future, our security, doesn't, isn't wrapped up in us not doing our sins anymore. It's wrapped up in realizing he's right. We're going to do it. But that which we do, it's sin. It breaks our heart. causes us to weep. We don't want to live that way. We want to be freed from that which is destroying us. And as Peter, when we learn to weep, blessed are they that mourn, for they'll be comforted. If you never weep over your sin... How can you ever be comforted? You push it under the table, you ignore it, you forget about it, you go into denial. Jesus wants you to confess, just to say the same thing about it that he says, and, and then sometimes you need to have a good cry. It's frustrating what we do to ourselves. It's frustrating how we hurt ourselves, injure ourselves and those around us. But cry and then look to the Savior on the cross and understand he paid the price. Back when Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper with his disciples, it talks about them singing a hymn at the end. Now, during the Passover, they would sing all of the Hallel Psalms from Psalm 111 through 118. And the last hymn, the last thing that Jesus would have sang there with his disciples, let me read it to you in Psalm 118. I will praise you. For you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, the day Jesus would give his life there, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, Hosanna. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And with that prophecy concerning himself, finishing that, he went out into the garden. He went out to be captured. He went out to be killed. Fulfilling the prophecy consistently, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, doing everything that it said he would do. And saying, and I'm really glad to do it when it comes right down to it. It's not something I'm sad about. I'll rejoice and be glad. Because the stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. Everything that God's going to do in the future is going to be built right now on this cornerstone that's being rejected. He realized that's who he was, what he had to do. Let's pray.
Lord, as we read and witness, as we're there with you in the upper room, the awfulness of that betrayal selling out by one of your friends, one who days before you had washed his feet, one who that night you had served him, the body and blood, and he betrayed you, and then realizing that everyone would scatter, hearing the foolishness of Peter, thinking that he never would, having your disciples fall asleep on you when you needed them, and hearing your cries of anguish, Lord, then knowing that you would go and face your death and do it for us, we're so grateful. And how you could face that, how you could say, this is my body, this is my blood, and then sing a hymn saying that you're happy to do it. You're an amazing God. You're so good to us. You love us so much. Lord, help us not to forget. And as we partake of, of this bread and juice, we are saying that, Lord, we want to partake of you. We want you to become more and more a part of us. We want you to fill us, to control us, to hold us close to your heart. But God, it's faith. Because we, like Judas, sometimes we'll sell out. We'll deny something that you want us to do because something else is more profitable. And like Peter, we'll pretend like we don't even know you. And like all the other disciples, we scatter and run when the going gets tough. But God, by faith, we want to grow. We want more of you to become more of us. And so we partake, acknowledging our sin, weeping at our, at our failures but realizing that you say that you're the bread of life. So God, breathe life into us. Infuse us with your presence, with your spirit, as we partake of the elements of communion now. In Jesus' name, amen.